Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We're interviewing Jesuit Father Mitch Pacwa, EWTN, and also of Ignatius Productions. And in the second part of our interview, we're going to talk about his experience getting into the New Age movement, the Enneagram, Jungian psychology, and how he got drawn into it, and then the process where he stepped back from it and eventually ended up writing a critique of it. Very, very interesting part of the interview, so please enjoy it. Father Mitchell, let's pick up where we left off about this book that I mentioned. So you moved into the city, you got exposed to psychology during the novitiate and got drawn into it, but something changed. Go So take us through the evolution sure. of your sure. involvement and why you changed your perspective on things. Well, the master of novices had been a psychologist, but he was no politician. <laughs> and when he closed the novitiate without having another novitiate to move to, he was trying to force Loyola University into giving a couple of buildings for the novitiate. They wouldn't do it. Well, wow. with us being homeless for the summer, we worked at an inner city parish, Holy Family Parish in Chicago, okay. on the near west side. And I speak Spanish, so I started working with a Mexican gang. And that got me into a number of situations where I realized the problems of the gang were part of a whole system of difficulties uh, regarding mm. housing, and that those were also connected with the African-American community. The parish was about 30,000 African-American folks living in the projects, about 5,000 Italians living in tenements, and about 5,000 Italians who owned the tenements and lived in three-story buildings and tenements themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I some of the Jesuits, uh, some California Jesuits, John Bauman and Jerry Helfrich, were doing Alinsky-style community organizing at that the was parish. very popular, right. Very popular at the time. And I joined up with them. And we were trying to organize the Mexicans along with the African-American community. This led to lots and lots of difficulties. There were a lot of gang fights. I was shot at a couple of times. And then finally, I'd gotten some of the members of the Italian community very upset. And a few weeks after, they threatened to kill one of my friends and get me blamed for it. That's how they put it. And about three weeks later, three guys came out of an alley, made my friend kneel down, shot him to the head, and beat me up. Wow. And killed me. So I had to get out of town, uh, as you can imagine. In some ways, they made a mistake in not killing me. It was so hot for me in Chicago, I had to go to Detroit to be safe. And that was, And things were pretty rough over there, too. But at any rate, uh, I left town. Nobody knew what PTSD was. I didn't call it that. But certainly I'd experienced, I was having nightmares every night. And then I went off to Detroit to study philosophy. And I began to study some psychology and became interested in Carl Jung Mm -hmm. because he did a lot with dream interpretations. And here I was having these nightmares every night. 
And so I studied that. But then Jung was also into all kinds of occult practices as well. And he used the I Ching, a Chinese divination system. And he used the horoscope and just a wide variety of superstitious practices as symbols of therapy and dreams and things like that. Okay. While I was at the same time at the university, I took a course in physics. It was an astronomy course. And the professor was also an astrologer, even though he was the president of the Detroit Astrophysical Association. He was an astrologer. And he was saying that there's something to it. Jung was saying there's something to it. And then I had some teaching assistants. One of my professors that my first year was R. Buckminster Fuller, the architect and inventor of the geodesic dome his teaching assistants were teaching astrology. So I started studying that. I said, well, it's just the, the physicist and the psychologist say that's okay. I knew from the catechism that it was wrong, a sin against the first commandment. But I said, well, this isn't superstitious. It's science. It's science, right. Yeah, well, that was malarkey. But that also <laughs> opened me up to studying a lot uh, Well. And also, this, this is 1970 to 72 that I was in Detroit. And with the changes in society, I was also studying Hinduism and Buddhism. I had courses in it from sure. the theology department, practicing Hindu. A, a really super gentleman. I mean, just a, a, an excellent teacher, extremely respectful of Christianity, but himself a Buddhist, taught these courses. And I was just studying all this stuff and became interested in what was later on known as the New Age movement. Uh-huh. And finally, right before I, I graduated in 72, in between finals and graduation, there was an eight-day intensive course on a personality typing system, typology system, called the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. It was offered by Father Robert Oakes, who had learned about this at the Esalen Institute in California. Which was very popular at the time. Well, this was how it became popular. He taught this at the Theologate practically Everybody at the Theologate was taking it. And then I got in on the eight-day intensive course that everybody had been taking for two quarters so far. Everyone was talking about, you know, that there are these nine personality types. That's what Enneagram means. Uh, It's a chart of nine, and it means nine personality types. And you try to figure out which one you are, and you went by numbers if you were one through nine. And, and so on. And I, I just became it's, it's kind of like a like astrology for for the personality. Actually, astrology and this uh, and the Enneagram are two different personality types. They're both typologies, but they they do not coincide at all. I tried to bring them together and they did not. And the difference is that astrology assigned your personality type by your birth date and the Enneagram allowed you to recognize which type you were by self-meditation. 
That was okay. the difference. So I kept studying this. I, you know, read as much as I could possibly get anything on the Enneagram. I just wanted to study this. I wanted to teach it. And a lot of other judges were teaching it. It became the main retreat, the Enneagram retreat at our retreat house outside of Cleveland. And it was the guy in our course that was teaching it. Are you uh, in your late 20s, early 30s at this point? I'm in my early 20s. Yeah, 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 22, and I took that. So I was pretty young. And then I was assigned to Regency, where I wanted to introduce this stuff. But the students were totally, totally uninterested in it. (laughs) And I had a miserable beginning of Regency, the time of teaching, uh, teaching religion to freshmen. I experienced a double kind of conversion. On one hand, I made the exercises with a Jesuit who had been in the Enneagram workshop with me. And we were using that, but it ended up becoming a retreat that focused on repentance uh, primarily. And the main texts I used for meditation were Romans 7 and 8. There's some 14 through the end of chapter 8. That I focused on that the whole retreat and on repentance and how do you overcome sin. And you know it was so clear that it was about grace. Later on as I was studying some books on Christian yoga, you know, uh, I was trying to do a combination of those things it became clear to me because also just as a side i had been assigned by the principal to be the moderator for a group of high school students who got together and prayed every morning before class started they were a charismatic prayer group and i joined them and in that process of praying with them each day they prayed for 20 minutes before school started, began with four, and eventually it got up to about 150 kids getting together before school started to pray. As a result, this was something that I had to deal with in terms of my faith. What I did, I'll never forget, it was November of that first year of teaching. I was by that point just turned 23. I realized that. I either had to accept Christ or pursue these states of consciousness. That became the clearest thing to me. Do I pursue Jesus Christ, the person, or states of mind and consciousness? And that when I saw that, the answer was clear. You go with Christ and not this state of consciousness. I began to be re- to realize that I was turning in on myself with okay. these, with this attempt to do yoga and Buddhist meditation, and I needed Christ, not my own state of mind. So that's when I began to move away from all that. I threw away all my astrology stuff. I mean, I had ephemeris to learn how, to, so I could learn how to cast horoscopes and things. I got rid of all that stuff and got to be part of the charismatic renewal. And I began to read everything that C.S. Lewis wrote, Mm, including his English literature critiques. 
and I read everything, and I began reading G.K. Chesterton. Great, great, two, two and great people. These two sort of helped cl me clarify theology that did go along with this spiritual change. Mm -hmm. The importance, and it became clear to me, one has to have both spiritual renewal and a change of heart and a baptism of the mind as well so that we what we think and what we experience spiritually are coordinated and integrated this is the key goal of the spiritual life integration mm -hmm. so i put behind me the new the new age stuff the enneagram i saw this was becoming extremely manipulative and you know people were saying oh i know that you're a one or you're a four whatever you know they're using these numbers right. as a shorthand instead of actually getting to know people as they reveal themselves on their own terms mm -hmm. uh, the enneagram was a way to rob their experience of their private life and say i already know what you're like instead of just saying you know if I had the privilege of getting to know your mind and heart, I want to know it. You know, that's a different experience. And it's parallel to the spiritual change that I want Christ rather than a state of consciousness. Well, also in personal relationships, I want to know those persons and not know, you know, what are these numbers and such nonsense. So I just put that behind me and went on to theology after two years of regency i got ordained after two years of theology so i was 26 when i was ordained now you're uh, young yeah very young for for jesuits but that was partly because they kept revitalizing and renewing each stage of studies but by the time they got around to where i was i already finished all the requirements they gave me so Very good. I just kept moving along. And they said, they even, the, the spirit even said, how did you get done so fast? And I did what you told me. And so, so they ordained me. And I taught high school for two more years outside Chicago. I hated it. I, I, I just didn't really enjoy teaching high school boys. And so I asked permission to go to graduate school. Originally, I didn't think I could do a good degree, you know, a serious degree. So I, I asked permission to go study under Matthew Fox right. in Chicago at a woman's college, Mundelein College. They adamantly refused. And I didn't understand why, but I trusted him on that. It turns out that he was wackadoodle. And I went back to school, studied more Greek and Hebrew. I'd studied it during my theologate. I went back and studied more Greek and Hebrew, did more exegesis, got accepted to Vanderbilt and got my PhD in Old Testament. When I came back to Chicago, I saw that the Enneagram was now even bigger, but it was changing and people were using this in ways that I thought were not legit. And that's when I began researching the Enneagram, Jung, and the New Age from the perspective of a critic. I think I had, I know I had more critical tools available to me 
after having done a PhD, and that's not just learning information about the Old Testament, but it was also learning how to study and write and research more seriously. How long did it take you to write the book, and how was it received by people? I started writing about 88, just began by writing articles. Mother Angelica had already asked somebody to do a series on the New Age movement, but that person was really big into big conspiracies of Masons, New Age, and all that. I told mother, let me do this. That was the only time I really pushed for me to do a series. So I did a TV series on it. I've been writing articles on it. And I I did 26 episodes criticizing the new age from lots of perspectives. And it was in 92 that I actually published the book, Ethics and the New Age, dealing with some of my own background in it. But also I'd done more research and shown that Jung was a Gnostic by his own self-definition. He claimed to be a Gnostic. And Catholics need to be extremely careful about using him. Secondly, the Enneagram was made up. You know, they, they had this nonsense of it being a 2,000-year-old Sufi system. Well, Sufis are Muslim mystics. Mm-hmm. And Islam didn't exist 2,000 years ago. <laughs> okay. And Sufism is 10th century. So they, they're inventing something 1,000 years before they existed. Sounds like Shirley MacLaine in a previous life or something. Exactly, so, exactly. Know, I was criticizing these things. And astrology, I'd done research with better physicists and astrophysicists than my original teacher and showed the the nonsense there. So that's why I wrote this book, because so many Catholics were getting into New Age as people in the church were doing less and less Orthodox Catholic theology. You had Catholics looking for spirituality in all the wrong places, to paraphrase an old Mickey Gillis song. That's the song. <laughs> Mitch, are those 26 episodes still available at EWTN? I think they're on the, our YouTube channel. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to conclude our interview about your time at EWTN, some of the highlights of that and what you hope to still accomplish in the future. We ended the second segment on your work on the New Age movement, the book that you wrote and the segments that you recorded for Mother Angelica. So obviously by this time you had met Mother Angelica. Tell us about your initial meeting with Mother Angelica and the work that you have been doing that you think is most important because you've been there 20 plus years or more. I've been here full time since 2002. Okay. I have been doing programs since February 29th of 1984. Amazing. 
Yeah, I always remember the date because it was Sadie Hawkins Day. <laughs> Great. And I used to tell mother I was your Sadie Hawkins Day date. Nice. To which she responded, you must have been pretty hard up. <laughs> And she had I, a great sense of humor. And I said, yeah, but you invited me. Nice. <laughs> for Sadie nice. Hawkins Day. <laughs> so, I mean, and that was one of the things about my relationship with her. We both teased each other. And, you know, because she was a very funny lady. That's one of the great things about faith in God. It gives you perspective and you can be funny. So. Atheists are humorless. So I've been I've been doing these programs uh, of different kinds since 1984, while I was still at Vandy, and it's, it's been a great privilege to you know teach these programs. That's for sure. Tell me about your first encounter with you. Told oh yeah, yeah, story yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah. First meeting mother. Yeah, yeah. First time uh, I was still a graduate student. I was driving a an old beater of a car. It was a 1968 Pontiac Le Mans, 8-cylinder. I don't know if you remember those. It, it uh, T-boned before I bought it. I wore my hunting boots and a flak jacket and blue jeans and a, a shirt, you know, an old flannel shirt and my cowboy hat, you know, down to the network in case I had to get out and fix something in the vehicle. And so <laughs> I arrive at EWTN's parking lot. And Mother Angelica is in the lot, and she says, sir, can I help you? And I said, hi, Mother, I'm Father Mitch Packwell. I'm your guest on tonight's show. She hit her forehead with the palm of her hand, and I said, don't worry, Mother, I clean up real well. And she called the president of the network, who was the one that invited me to come, and told him, if this kid doesn't work out, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> this was and, on her live show, EWTN Live, right? With my yeah, mom. yeah. Well, well, she said that to him in private, but she meant it. I guarantee <laughs> you that. So I got on the show. I was talking about the origin of the canon of scripture. How do we know what goes in the Bible? Nice. And she and I had such a great time doing that show that she, during the break, she said, we're going to make this a two-hour show. We kept going. Now, one of the reasons was I was explaining the origin of the New Testament canon. I said that the first crisis of the canon came from a man named Marcion who rejected everything Jewish from the Bible. All he was left with was Luke and Acts, because Luke was a Gentile, and he kept some of Paul. And I said, not only did Pope Pius I excommunicate him for this, but so did his father, because he was the son of a bishop. Well, wow. mother does this double take, and she looks at me, and I realized I'd said son of a bishop kind of fast. And so <laughs> she took another interpretation for it. Uh, so then, but then when she realized what I said, she sort of sat back and had this look, okay, this is the kind of kid we're playing with tonight. So <laughs> let's go with it, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And during another one of the breaks, because, you know, EW10 doesn't do any commercials. So during one sure. of the other breaks, 
she said, I want you to come back and do a series. And I did one on the Psalms, using Psalms as biblical texts for making the spiritual exercises. And I've been doing series and programs ever since. Mother Angelica has gone to her great reward. We don't have a whole lot of time, but what is her contribution to Catholic life and culture? I don't think you'll be able to write a history of the church in America without a chapter on Mother Angelica. She changed so much at a time when catechesis had been pretty much moved off to the side and was not being done. She catechized. When so many theologians and clergy and religious and sometimes even the episcopacy were questioning, if not outright denying and teaching contrary to Catholic morals, she stood up for it. When society was doing things that were blasphemous in regard to Christ and God, she stood up against it. Mm. And she did so in public. And she did not care. She did not say, oh, I might lose the network. Well, she didn't want to lose the network, but she didn't want to lose her soul either. Mm. And so she would stand up for Catholic truth all the time. And what you saw on stage was exactly what you saw off stage. There was no acting by her. She was herself. The audience could tell it. Those of us working here could tell it as well. And this is you know, something that I'm always grateful for. And I try to live up to. Now, a lot of times people said, oh, you're not like Mother Angelica. I said, no, I can't be. I'm not a wise old nun and I never will become. (laughs) Nor would she (laughs) want me to become a wise old nun. I'm who I am. And I was the one that she chose to take her place. That was her choice. Did she have a formal education, Mitch? Up to uh, high school. She finished high school. That was it, which in the 1930s was pretty good. Uh, Not a lot of people did that even. She was really intelligent. She was really quite bright. And she had what we say down here in Alabama, a lot of walking around sense. You know, she just really, or street smarts up north, they might say. Sure. Um, Sure. She had a lot of that. And she had a lot of courage. She had suffered a lot. And she had learned not to be afraid of too much. And she loved Jesus so much. Mm. For every hour she spent on air, she would spend four hours in meditation before the Blessed Sacrament. That was that. that was her routine. And she always said, you know, Jesus, if you want this network, we need this. But it was really an if. You know, for instance, when... The guy showed up with the first of the satellite dishes. It was $180,000, but she had to pay 60000 of it upon delivery. Well, the guy showed up, and she didn't expect him that day. She didn't have it. Nowhere close. There's almost nothing in the bank. So she tells him, sweetheart, would you like to go get some tea and cookies with the sisters, and I'll go get your money. She goes into <laughs> the chapel, and she says, Jesus, if you want this network, 
You have to give me $60,000 right now. And she prayed and prayed and nothing said, oh, okay. I guess you don't want the network. And she had that equal mindedness about it, that, that sure. spiritual indifference. She said, okay, if you don't want it, then you don't want it. She's walking out the door. The nun who was the portress stopped her and said, mother, there's a man on the phone that says he needs to talk to you. She says, not now, sweetheart. I have to go and tell the man to take back the dish. She said, no, no, no. You don't understand. He's on a boat in the Caribbean. And he's talking on the phone. This is before cell phones were known. Wow. This is wow. 1980. <laughs> and so she said, all right, all right. So she calls. The guy says, mother, I love your little booklets. It's changed my life. I want to give you $60,000. <laughs> she says to the guy, can you send it to me right now? <laughs> and he did an electric transfer. Nice. And mother's biographer, Raymond Arroyo, checked at the bank for the records. And sure enough, that electric transfer was sent precisely at the time when the guy came. Amazing story. Yeah, but it was this kind of stuff was kind of the normal stuff we saw go on around here. Well, a woman of great faith, uh, great humility and great humor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you think she'll become a saint? Oh, I suspect so. I really do. Now, this is the fifth anniversary of her death, so the process can be started. But there are already reports of a number of spiritual favors that have been granted at her intercession. So that's all being investigated. And you know, all of her writings are already in the process of being investigated. It can begin officially. Uh, they'll, they'll get it started as soon as they can. Okay, so you take over. Mother Angelica left the network. She didn't die. She left. They moved to, to Hansville. Is that correct? Well, what had happened is they moved the convent to Hansville, and she very much, you know, wanted to withdraw from the network to live uh, the life of a poor Claire. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, you know, what she loved. But she was still continuing on here at the network, but okay. only part time. And then in 2001, she had a number of strokes. And the last one was, in fact, just three weeks after she had asked me to come and help her. And it was on Christmas Eve of 19, uh, assume of 2001. And as this, you know, stroke hit her, it was more of a cerebral hemorrhage that uh, affected the left side of her brain where her speech centers are. And she couldn't really speak much anymore. So that's when I came full time. I was in the process of coming anyway. Right. But I was going to be there to assist her on the shows, but then she couldn't speak much anymore. A little bit, but not much. I had heard uh, the time from her stroke to the time that she passed. EW10 as a network tripled in size and audience. Well, so, and so somebody had attributed that to her prayers and offering up her suffering during yeah. that time. Actually, everybody here does. <laughs> Right. I, I'm not sure that all of her opposition did, but we sure, sure did. Yeah, when I first came here full time, we were reaching 60 million homes. Right now, 
it's way over 300 million homes. And this is around the world. Yeah, globally. Okay, so, so yeah, you're in the chair. Oh, you have you, you hold you hold the uh, the main show for EWTN. Yeah, uh, which Mother Angelica started. There are a lot of issues in the church in the world. Uh, what uh, issues do you like to address, and how do you select people to come on? What are the, what are the top three or four issues you think need to be educated on in terms of like catechesis and spiritual education for the people sure. of today? Sure. I'd say we don't limit, and I I don't limit this to any one particular issue. I want a wide variety of education on issues of human life and dignity. Mm -hmm. This is a big issue in our culture. We see human dignity and life constantly being challenged. And so we have to deal with that. And then understanding the faith, this has been a big concern of mine. So many Catholics, lots of studies showing that Catholics don't understand some of the doctrines that are distinctive of us, like transubstantiation. Studies will say Catholics don't agree with it anymore. They don't agree with it in surveys because they don't understand it anymore. Okay, and for uh, for people who might not know, transubstantiation is the Catholic belief that the bread and wine are transferred into the actual species of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And so I just finished, for instance, a, a Bible study on the Eucharist. It took me a year of going through a book I wrote called The Eucharist, a Bible study for Catholics. I've written a number of Bible studies addressing these doctrinal issues that people don't know. And I bring guests who will help to explain this. A lot of times you have folks explaining historical background. There's all kinds of nonsense about history that is just not true, you know, uh, regarding Catholicism. And so we tried to show this is what we actually are dealing with. And I, I like guests who do that, as well as uh, we've been addressing lots of issues regarding communism and totalitarian governments. We have so many folks that want society to move towards more totalitarianism. It's shocking, but it's happening very, very fast. Well, we're seeing that it's not so much the federal government that is silencing ideas and speech, but it's private industry. The corporations are doing this. I don't understand what is going on uh, as to their motives, but I suspect that they're going to last long enough to regret having experienced that i'm certainly hoping that's true mitch yeah i do i do well i well actually i don't want them to live long enough to regret it i want before they have to experience regret i would like to see them experience a change that there's one kind of objection to true hatred but 
hatred gets redefined. And uh, for instance, the American Academy of Pediatrics is now listed as a hate group. Right. It's a group of, right. of medical doctors. Right. But as pediatricians, they have medical and scientific objection to sex change operations for children. And they object to uh, giving them hormones, things like that. For that reason, apparently, they are counted as a hate group. And yes. they're listed as such. And now one of my friends who's a member of it, she's a neonatologist, is not allowed to teach at a medical school because she belongs to a hate group. Even though she has developed expertise at delivering babies up to 21 weeks or down to 21 weeks old mm-hmm. and successfully delivering babies. But she can't teach medical students some of the procedures of dealing with those things. Do you see uh, from your perch, you've got a, um, you, you are wise. You're not a wise old nun, but you are a wise Jesuit. And you have had a lot of uh, world experience. Do you see a hope for change coming? Do you think that we've gone far enough down the rabbit hole that people are going to say, as they said when John Paul went to Poland, the people shouted, we want God, we want God. Is there a moment of rebirth that you see coming, or do you see us uh, slipping a little more into the totalitarian and the communist area? I, I truly see the tension pulling in both directions. The society has gotten increasingly divided. And because relativism is such a commonplace notion in our society, I have my truth, you have your truth, we'll just agree to disagree. Well, that never works. It you doesn't don't agree work. to disagree. And with that relativism, you have an inability to argue a point. People don't share enough truth to be able to develop an argument one way or the other. That's the the great weakness of relativism. It isolates every individual and makes them incapable of logical argument based on good information. I'd like to describe it as it's the original sin, actually, where our primordial parents were going to decide for themselves what was true and what was not true to be like God. So we're kind of living in the full bloom, I think, of a culture. Original sin has uh, reached its apex in in modern culture. (laughs) I think that's exactly correct. The problem is that in the face of being unable to argue any point because there's not enough shared assumptions and shared information. Right. What you end up with is that might makes right. So whether it be Antifa and Black Lives Matter causing havoc on city streets or the people who were attacking the Congress entering there with violence in mind and and causing havoc there. Both sides of that issue, though there may have been some people from 
one side in both situations. That has to be investigated. But given that, uh, you see examples of how people try to make might make them right. And they cannot argue about anything. They have to beat down the opposition. You shout them down, or in the case of these media corporations, you shut them up. You just don't allow them to have a voice. One of my guests who wrote a book called The Devil and Karl Marx, he did research into some poems that Karl Marx had written addressed to Satan and talking about Satan in his poetry. Mm. This is not well known, but he found the handwritten copies. Somebody just recommended that book to me, by the way, I just just last week. Well, now Facebook will not allow that to be advertised. And a woman who wrote a Stations of the Cross book for little children cannot advertise that book because it's too violent. (laughs) And there's no blood displayed in any of her illustrations it's a children's book and it's you know made you know much more gentle and simple but still christ is crucified they're not allowing that on this is not a good pattern to to end uh the uh the darkness seems to be all around us but to end on the note of optimism consolation uh hope what is the other side that you see uh, that's in tension with this, that we know ultimately the, the, the good guys win, but what do you see as manifesting in culture and in the church, which is a counter to this type of darkness, totalitarianism, and control? A, I look through powerful groups in history who use this approach, and they always self-destruct. Germany suffered more under the National Socialist Workers' Party than most of the countries they invaded. Mm. You know, the, the National Socialist workers being the Nazis, of course. And Soviet Union suffered worse than even some of their satellite countries under their regime. And they continue suffering. This, all Pol Pot and so on, they always undo themselves. That's one point of history that we need to pay attention to. The Roman Empire did the same thing. They undid themselves. And what we know of the goodness of the Roman Empire was preserved by the church. Sure. Secondly, I do see that a lot of folks are, you know, standing up for their faith. The ones who know their faith are saying, this is not going to stand. They see their rights being challenged, their religion being ridiculed, and their uh, ideas being silenced. Now people are looking for alternatives. They're going to other uh, social media like Rumble and things, and they're migrating. They're still not so locked down that they can't migrate. And this is something that I think uh, a lot of Catholics are doing with the view of promoting the faith they love jesus they, right. they love the faith and i see among young people entering religious life and seminary i'm very impressed with the ones i meet very impressed. Yeah. Men and women alike. i am too i am too 
Great, great people, both women and men, right? Yeah. I, I wrote an article in which I said that heterodox liberal Catholics are spiritual geldings in spays. They can't right. reproduce. Right. They don't right. bring in vocations and they don't bring in converts. Right. It's the same thing as in secular society. Sure. It undoes itself. So as people do have the faith and as these other forces self-destruct, I think that we have a lot of hope. Yeah, I will just end with this thought. Um, a Polish couple that I got to know, you're Polish. He was the ambassador to the United States and defected under Ronald Reagan, Ramul Spasovsky and his wife, Wanda. He has a storied history. We're going to be republishing. We got a licensing agreement with Harcourt Brace and Yovanovitch to do a 10-year reprint of his uh, autobiography called The Liberation of One, which is a cautionary tale for people who are attracted to communism in terms of what it can do. Sure. But Wanda told me that uh, on the second trip of John Paul to Poland, when he was there with General Jaroszewski, the premier of Poland, Romek, her husband, Romuald, and she said the apparatchiks of the Communist Party. She said Jaroszewski's legs were shaking like wet noodles, and she said he was not afraid of the Holy Father. He had become fearful of about 2% of the Polish people that had lost their fear of the regime and were willing to give their lives for the cause of freedom. So that's always very encouraging for me. We don't need the whole culture to shift. We need the courageous 2% to stand up and say no more. And that's what I'm praying for, that those people stand up. And I'm praying that I'm a part of that too. (laughs) Father Mitch, great being with you. You have a great ministry. We will be promoting this interview and putting links to various things that you have done when we put it up there. And I'd just uh, like to ask if you would close a prayer as you began us with a prayer for the people who are listening. Lord, we praise you and bless you and give glory to your name. Keep us faithful to you, to serve you with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and to serve our neighbor, all for your greater praise and glory. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father Mitch. God bless you. Thank you. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.